Friends, this feast today of Corpus Christi, the gift of the Eucharist, tells us everything we need to know about who God is at His very core. This feast today and the celebration of Corpus Christi and the gift of the Eucharist teaches us everything we need to know about who God is at His very core. Now I'm playing with the word core. The feast today, of course, is Corpus Christi. In Latin, the body of Christ. But the first three letters of the word corpus are cor, C-O-R, which is the Latin word for heart. It speaks, obviously, etymologically to the idea that the heart is at the center of the body, that the heart is at the center of who the person is, the deepest part of ourself. Of course, when we are asked in exercise to stabilize the core, to work the core muscles, which I always hate. You know, who likes to do abs and lower back and stuff? You know, it's not glorious. But stabilizing the core is, is stabilizing what's at your center, what helps you balance. And so I wanted to reflect today on what this feast and the gift of the Eucharist teaches us about the core of God, His heart. And how his heart speaks to our heart on this feast. In fact, you may know that in the motto of St. John Henry Newman, great patron saint of campus ministry who was canonized last year, his motto was Corad Cor, heart to heart. Which is actually from a letter of St. Francis de Sales. I don't know if we have any St. Francis people, but I've heard it's a motto within Salesian spirituality as well. Heart speaking to heart. Corad Cor loquitur. Heart speaking to heart. So what does this feast teach us about God's heart, His core, and how it's meant to transform our core? First of all, God's heart is a providing heart. He's a provider. He desires to provide for us what we need each day. And we get a beautiful description of this in our first reading with the narrative of the manna. And I don't know if you remember the story from the Old Testament, but the Israelites have just left Egypt. They've just been liberated from slavery in Egypt, and they're out in the desert, and they're starting to grumble and complain against God and Moses because they say, you know what, slavery was kind of bad for us, but we had good food there. We liked the food they gave us. So we kind of want to go back. And God says, no, 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 you don't want to go back to slavery. I'll provide miraculous food for you. And so... According to Exodus, he provides quail in the evening and this manna, this heavenly food in the morning that drops like dew amidst their camp. I've always thought of it like that it was just kind of like apple fritters. <laughs> like on the ground, you know? Because I was looking forward to trying manna in heaven, I thought. But then, then I got ruined yesterday when one of the 430 mass goers brought me this prop, which is from the store. This is called Mighty Manna Bread. And it looks horrible. <laughs> you want to see this later. I mean, I would need a whole stick of butter, I think, to eat this. So I don't know if I'm looking forward to manna trying it myself anymore, but... I don't know if you remember the rules of God's distribution of the manna, which teaches us an incredible lesson. 
God only provides enough manna for each family to go out every morning and pick what they need for that day only. And everything else spoils overnight. Except on Friday night, the day before the Sabbath. They can harvest two days' worth on Friday night so they don't have to harvest and labor on the Sabbath. But other than on Friday night, we're told, the manna spoils and rots overnight. So you can only take that which you need for that day. Which is what we beautifully pray for in the Our Father when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, get me through this day. Spiritually, get me enough to get me through this day. And I don't know about you and the times that we're living in. Like That's, that's all I can do someday. Some days. Like, Lord, get me through this day. This day. Jesus says this right in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have all sorts of problems you haven't even anticipated yet. Right? Worry about today. Because I'll be here today. I'll give you enough manna. I'll give you enough spiritual support for today. It also has... That aspect of God's heart, giving us enough for today, has an element where it's supposed to transform our heart too, though. And it has a social component, which is that a kind of sense of gratitude and contentment with what we have. And then letting what is in excess be used and invested in the service of the greater community. See, they couldn't hoard the manna because it would spoil or rot. I was thinking about this back in March when people were hoarding toilet paper. I was trying to get them in the Kroger to read Exodus 16 and to say, you know, you can't hoard toilet paper for the next 10 years. You just need to take what you need. But no one listened. But there's a a beautiful Christian ethos that's present there. It's not to say that all striving for more is a bad thing, but it is to say that the Christian should be animated by a spirit of once one has what one needs for one's family, right? that we look for ways to invest the excess in the common good. To look for ways to invest what we have left over for those in need. God's heart is a providing heart. Second, God's heart is a unifying heart. God wants to be a unifier. And I want to draw on the second reading for this in which Paul says, don't you think that when you unite with the cup of Christ, you're uniting in fact, participating in His sacrifice. When you eat of the one loaf, are you not participating and sharing in His one sacrifice? That what we commune with and consume and invest in is in fact where our allegiances lie. Paul was dealing with a a particular problem in in Corinth when he wrote uh, them in 1 Corinthians. They were were troubled by this question of all the food at marketplaces that that were sacrificed to pagan idols and pagan gods. And their question for Paul was like, when we consume something that's been sacrificed to a pagan god, are we like participating in that? Are we endorsing or sanctioning that particular god? And Paul gives a variety of answers to this, actually, in 1 Corinthians. But the one in this passage is, he is sort of suggesting that what we consume, what we commune with, what we invest in becomes what we worship. It becomes what we idolize. It also becomes what we put out. 
we have the negative saying of this garbage in, garbage out. That the more we take in that's bad and negative and stuff, the more we put out like that. But it's also true on the other end, which we never hear. And I'll put it like this, grace in, grace out. The more we seek union with God, right, the, the allowing of His grace and His power and strength to take hold of us, the more we can share that with others. The more that we unite ourselves in the Eucharist to the sacrifice of Jesus, the more we can give ourselves like His sacrifice in sacrifice to others. Because ultimately, our union with God is not a private affair. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about allowing my union with God to lead me to building communion with others. My union with God is at the service of building communion. Paul says this at the end of the second reading, though we are many, very disparate, we are one body because we share in the one loaf and the one cup. That God desires to be a unifier precisely so that our hearts become unifying forces in building up communion and community. Finally, God's heart is life-giving. God desires to give us life. I don't know how many times, if you caught in the Gospel, that this passage about the Eucharist, which is an incredible passage in John 6, it's really, you might say, the central text for us as Catholics in understanding how seriously Jesus takes this claim that He is the bread of life. Because when He's questioned, and and they're like, this doesn't make any sense, are you talking to us about cannibalism? What are you talking about? Jesus doesn't back down. He keeps reinforcing the fact that you're actually going to feed on me. That my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And people in in the verses right after this leave Jesus over this teaching. People didn't leave Jesus when He said, I am the vine. They didn't leave Him when He said, I am the good shepherd. They didn't leave Him when He said, I am the gate. They didn't leave Him when He said, I am the door. They didn't leave Him when He said, I am the springs of living water. All in John's Gospel. But they did leave him when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. But the, te- the word used the most in that gospel is life. The Eucharist is to give us life, and it's precisely to give us life so that we can animate our relationships with the, a life-giving spirit. To, to, to play a little bit again with the word core and corpus, It's interesting to contrast whether our Eucharistic life looks more like a corpse, a dead body, or is it more animated by what we call in the church the corporal works of mercy, the acts of service that remedy people's bodily suffering. Right? We talk in the church of the corporal works of mercy, feeding the the hungry, sheltering uh, the homeless, visiting the sick, the imprisoned. We call those the corporal works of mercy. Works of service directed at remedying people's bodily struggles. And so, for us who receive this great gift of the Eucharist, listen, we can receive it every week and not be transformed. It's not magic. We have to allow it to transform us. And and it's a great examination of conscience for us as Eucharistic people to say, is my Eucharistic Corpus Christi life animated Or does it look more like a corpse, a dead, inanimate, lifeless, stale, stagnant kind of reality? 
Or is it animated more by the corporal works of mercy? Taking this body of Christ and having it transform our body so that we might serve the bodies of those that we encounter. So this is an incredible feast. Uh, it's, it's quite old. It was celebrated universally in the church starting in 1264. It's about an 800, 900-year tradition to celebrate just a dedicated feast to the Corpus Christi, the body and blood. It's the name of our parish, and so it has such a special place. And I would suggest just like stabilizing our physical core is important to our physical health, stabilizing our spiritual core, our heart, is much more important. And we learn on this feast day, this weekend, everything we need to know about who God is at His very core.